You're listening to Crosspoint Community Church in LaGrange, Texas podcast. To learn more about Crosspoint Community Church, including service times and how you can connect, please visit crosspointchurchtx.org. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to you. And uh, we begin a new series entitled Firm Foundation. And um, what I, over the next few weeks, we're going to be digging into this big word called doctrine. And um, so I want you to, what our desire is, is for you over these next few weeks, is to, to build a found, firm foundation of a house. Because we know that life storms are coming. They will be coming. And so our goal is, our desire is, God's desire for you, is that you build your house on a firm foundation so that when life storms come, the house can withstand. In particular here, I want you to understand the house of faith that you have established and that you're building and that you're nurturing can withstand the storms because they will come. And so over these next few weeks, we're going to be digging into some things that that are foundational for your house, foundational for your life and for your faith. And so that if you have a grasp of these things and you've put them together well in your house, your house will be able to to withstand the storms that are going to come. And so I'm I'm not a builder by any sorts. As a matter of fact, if, um, if you even see me beginning to do any remodeling or reconstruction, call somebody that knows what they're doing because they will have an opportunity to make more money because I've worked on it. All right. But anyway, at our house, uh, at our house, we, uh, we have the gift of sarcasm and uh, the spiritual gift of sarcasm. And so we, we share that with each other quite a bit. And um, this week that happened. And so I was, uh, my daughter actually, she asked me, she goes, Hey dad, what are you preaching on this week? And um, I said, the Bible. And and her witticism, she's like, duh, you know, no doubt you always teach on the Bible or Jesus or both or whatever. And so because that's usually my my uh, sarcastic answer whenever someone, not someone, but my family asks me, what are you preaching on this week? I'm like, Jesus, you know, um, what do you think I'm teaching about? But anyway, so we're going to teach on the Bible today, not a joke. Um, and what I want you to get is what the Bible is, why the Bible. And so it's going to be a little different. So I'm going to give you. Let's say theoretically for the first half of the message time, I'm going to give you some information. And so if you have your, you have your notes, you have your whatever, I'm going to be, you're going to be writing some stuff down and your homework is to find, find these places in scripture. Um, and then at about halfway through, I'm going to flip the script from just giving you, not necessarily just giving you information, but giving you, we're going to open up Luke chapter eight and we're going to see how the Bible should transform our lives and how we should be prepared to receive um, from the word of God. So if you have your notes, if you have your Bible, open up to Luke chapter eight, um, begin writing in there. Um, belief in the Bible does not make it true. Belief enables me to enter into what is already true. In other words, the Bible is true, whether you believe it or not. It's the word of God. It's the standard of truth. It's the gold standard of truth. It's true no matter whether you believe it or not. But belief in the Bible allows us to enter into it and begin to receive from it so that it can transform us and do the work that the word of God um, is meant to do for us. And so this morning... um, this message and the, probably the next few are actually we're talking to the Christians. We're talking to the Christian church. We're pulling back the curtain on some foundational things that you need to understand and grasp and deal with. And this will help you mature in your faith 
um, as you begin to understand these things. So the first question I want to deal with is, what is the Bible? And to describe that for you, I'm going to use terms that the Bible uses to describe itself. So the first way that the Bible describes itself, it says, the Bible is honey in my mouth. In other words, that as you take in the word of God, it is sweet to the soul and to the mind that you want to go back to that sweetness of the honey of the word of God and have it over and over and over again. The Bible also says that it is food for the hungry. In other words, that as we hunger after and thirst after righteousness, as we eat from it, we want more because it tastes good. You're hungry and you're going to go back. And the interesting thing about the word of the God, it satisfies in the moment, but it also creates a craving for more and a wanting for more. The Bible also says it's a lamp for my feet, which we just sang about. It's this idea that as we open up the word of God, it gives us a clear vision, a clear path for our next step, maybe our next two steps. But most of the time, it doesn't necessarily give us a clear vision for the next five to ten years other than to follow Jesus. But step by step, the Bible also says it's a joy and a delight to my heart. The reason that it's a joy and a delight to my heart that as the chaos of life happens or as someone say, world goes to heck in a handbasket, right? As things begin to happen, the one thing that we can stand on is the work and person of Jesus Christ. And so if we said yes to him, our joy will never leave because the joy of our salvation can never be snatched from us. Everything else can be taken from us, but that cannot because it's not in our own strength and our own power and our own wisdom and our own education, and our own wealth that we have that gift. It's been given to us by Christ alone. And he's the same yesterday, today and forever. So that will never leave us so we can always have joy. The Bible also says it renews our mind renews our heart. It's this idea of the old idea of garbage in and garbage out. What you take in will come out. And so as we take in the word of God, it renews us and it re-energizes us. And the goodness of God, the eyes of God, the heart of God comes out from us. Also, the Bible says that it's a fire that burns in my heart. If any of you are good Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or RAs or GAs or whatever, you did any camping, what do you do when you start a fire? You prepare it and you put a little bit of kindling and then you begin to add to it. And that's the word of God. As a little kindling gets in and you begin to, to catch the fire and you're like, man, this is good. I, can, I get to see about who God is. I get to better understand who Jesus is. More wood gets added to the fire and then there's like a bonfire and you're like, whoa, what the, who is this? It's this kind of an idea. Is that the fire of God never goes out. Once it begins, it never passes away. The Bible also says that it's more precious than gold. That it's something that's gold has been of, of value and of worth for a long time all throughout history. Probably will continue to be. And God says, listen, that even though it may be the most precious thing, the most precious thing that you have is the words of God spoken to you. And this is not the last way the word this Bible describes itself, but it's going to be for today because we'd be here for a long time. This is four weeks of messages in one day. So listen up. All right. Sharper than any two-edged sword, the Bible says. That it brings death and life in the same cut. That as it cuts and brings death, it's pruning away the things that suck energy and life from you so that it can bring life and energy to the other parts so that those things can be more than abundantly fruitful. 
And so that as God does his work through the word of God and he cuts and he brings death to some things, it's so that he can bring life to others. And so then in the moment of those deaths, there's pain, it's hurt, it's discipline that God provides, but it's so that he can provide a, a harvest, as we'll see in the scripture in Luke chapter 8, a harvest of a hundred times or more because of the pruning that happens. So the Old Testament, the Bible is made up the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament and the New Testament have one purpose, and that purpose is to point people to Jesus. The 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, all of them point to Jesus. In the Old Testament, there are several different types of genre of literature. This is your English class moment. There's a little bit of law, which is where most of you people, including myself, are like our eyes roll back in the back of our head. And they're like, really, God, do I have to read this? Um, We'll talk about that in the future of how even those things points to Jesus. Um, The history of the Old Testament, there's poetry in the Old Testament, there's wisdom in the Old Testament, and there's also prophets, some prophecy. In the New Testament, there's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's the Acts, which is the beginning of the church. So there's miracles that happen there. The epistles, which are the letters. So the letters of Paul and a couple of others. It's written specifically, mostly to churches. And then also that wonderful book of Revelation that every once in a while, somebody, not every once in a while, it feels like once a week, somebody says, Pastor Chris, when are you going to preach on Revelation? Here it is. Y'all ready? There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be famines and rumors of famines. There's going to be all kinds of crazy stuff happening and the calamities and nations will fall and nations will rise. We're in the end times. The thief will come in the middle of the night. Be prepared. You will hear a trumpet sound. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then those of us that are in Christ that are still alive will rise as well. There's your book and study of Revelation. All right. Look at that. I told you four messages in one. There we go. The Old Testament was written over about 1,100 years, and the New Testament was written in about 100 years, more like 70, but all right, so you can see a lot of information there. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and it's a language that's very, uh, they call it guttural because it comes from here, so there's a lot of spitting involved, all right? Um, so it was, the Old Testament was written that way originally. The New Testament was written in the common language of the day, which was Koine Greek. So if y'all remember that person called Alexander the Great took over the world in the 300s or so. And whenever he took over, took over Greek culture, Greek language, Greek mythology, all that. That's why you had to study Greek mythology because of Alexander the Great. All that type of stuff came along with him. And so whenever Jesus came about, that was the common language of the day of the people. So just like English today, whenever you travel the world, that is in most places, English is the language of commerce. Greek was the language of commerce and of life of the day. There was also a common form of Hebrew smoke, uh, smoke, spoken. Uh, they weren't, they may have, somebody may have been smoking, but they were speaking. Um, there you go. And that's some good stuff. Anyway, they were speaking the common form of Hebrew, which was Aramaic. And so in the, in the New Testament, Old Testament, you'll see some, there's some moments where there's parts where it's Hebrew and then it switches over to Aramaic and then it switches back to Hebrew and all the different stuff. That's why you need those smart guys that have nothing else to do but to study that to help us understand some portions of it. Um, about 200 years before Jesus came on the scene, 72 scholars 
took the Hebrew Old Testament and wrote and translated it into Greek so the people could understand it and have it. And so it's called the Septuagint because of the 72 Jewish scholars. Um, so they could have the, the Old Testament in the common language of the day. And then about 400 AD, the Latin Vulgate, it was one of the first times after 325, there was a, a, a group of, of religious men, New Testament men came together and said, hey, these are the books of the Bible. These are the ones that we th- believe that God has inspired for the New Testament. And about 400 AD, they put them in a book together and it was called the Latin Vulgate. And there were some because it was put together by the Catholic Church, um, this original conglomeration of books, they included 12 books called the Books of the Apocrypha. They're not in your Bible as a Protestant. Um, and the reason that they're not in your Bible as a Protestant is because none of the New Testament writers quoted from the Apocrypha. Okay, And so there are teachings, there are stuff that, that our Catholic brothers and sisters believe and teach, like purgatory and some of those different things, um, that come from the Apocrypha. All right. And so that's where there's, I mean, there's several reasons about things that we disagree on, but that's one of the reasons is because they have some different books than we do. All right. And the reason we don't have them is because the New Testament people like Jesus and other guys didn't refer to them as authoritative. All right. In 1214 AD, books were then divided into chapters. So before that time, if you were to go to church, the pastor would come up and he'd say, let's open up to Isaiah. And he would just unroll the scroll and he would find the spot and he would know where he was going to go. Why? Because Jewish men up through eighth grade would go to school and they would study the Torah and they would study the Torah so well. By the time that they got to eighth grade, they would know the Torah by heart and memory. And so they would come into the worship service and say, hey, let's turn to Isaiah. We would say chapter 53, verse 10. They would quote the first part of the verse and people would go, oh, yeah. And they would Rolodex it in their mind and go, I'm there. All right. So we have work to do. <clears throat> so they divided into the chapters. And then about 15, 14 verses came. There was this thing called the printing press. And uh, as people began to go to church and guys like Martin Luther and John Calvey and Ulrich Zwingli and those guys that were early, uh, early church fathers of the Reformation began to preach, they would begin to say, hey, turn to Matthew chapter 23, verse 19, and people go, I don't know how to find that. And so they began to put that stuff in there. So that's why even today when we read out of Luke chapter 8, you'll see weird spots where they just put a little verse thing. Um, it's not always at the end of a period or, or anything like that. They just, they probably weren't Baptists and were drinking wine and just decided randomly where to put stuff. Are y'all okay? All right. All right. Here we go. It's known as the Holy Bible. It's known as scriptures. It's known as the word of God. I mean, we just had Oktoberfest yesterday, right? All right. Why the Bible? So what is the Bible? Why the Bible? Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 and 17. It says all scripture. And so that's. All the Old Testament, all the New Testament, okay? And we'll, well, that's a whole other sermon in what Scripture is. But for today, the simple answer is all the Old Testament, all the New Testament, is inspired by or breathed out by God. Now, here's the interesting thing is that every time God speaks, creation happens. There's power in the Word of God. So in Genesis chapter 1, when God spoke, what happened? Creation happened. And so here Paul is drawing us back to that kind of activity of God, that every time that God speaks, there's creation, there's transformation that happens because God's Word does not return void. So all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful. What's it useful for? To teach us what is true. So there's a, there's a standard of truth. So when you build a house, there's a standard by which what is level and not level. 
Right? Y'all, y'all know that? Okay, so they come in and they have this little thing and it's like, it's level. And if it's level, they will continue to work. If it's not level, what do they do? They level it. So here Paul is drawing on that language. He's saying, listen, I want you to understand that this is breathed out by God. And I want you to show what level is, what truth is, so that you can build your house on a firm foundation that is level, that will not shake, that will not wobble, that will not crack what is true and to make you realize what is wrong in your lives. So therefore, it then corrects us when we're wrong. The beautiful thing about God is is it also tells us in Scripture that God isn't like a -a whack-a-mole God where he's just waiting for us to just pop up and go, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. It actually says it's by his kindness, by an overly, 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 overly kind God that gently just kind of nudges us and says, hey, you're going in the wrong direction. Do you see the warning signs? It corrects us when we are wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. Because God uses it to prepare and equip us, his people, to do every good work. That's why we send our kids off to college. That's why we send our kids off to school. That's why we send our kids off even to this, like the TSTC and places like that. Why? Because we want them to get an education to prepare them for their future because we want them to work. And not live at our house all the time. And so this is really, this is the image that Paul's drawn upon. A guy like, listen, I want my kids to be trained and prepared to mature out and to go to work. I have worked specifically for each one of my children. And so I want to prepare them and train them up because they've got good work ahead of them. And if they're just sitting at home on mommy and daddy, they're not doing the work that I have for them. And so that's part of it. He's teaching us and preparing us and equipping us to get us out. So the Bible is God's specific word to us. That's one of the ways that he reveals himself. He also reveals himself, Romans 1 tells us, that God reveals himself through creation, through the world. That as you go out, even today, when it's a little bit cooler today, amen? As you go out, and you can wander because it's cooler. You go around and you look at creation and you're like, wow. Look at that. And you can see all the intricacies and all the different things about God's creation. It draws our heart's attention and says, listen, something or someone had to do this. And so it draws our eyes up to him and says, only could God intelligently design this. Even as we study We understand that God's a God of order, not a God of chaos. And because God's a God of order, it allows us to do science. You realize that science is what? Repeatable things that happen. And so God continually repeatable does things in your human body that allows doctors and scientists to understand, hey, because of that, I can, there's medicines now that can be put in our body to bring us back to health or restore us. There's different things that we can do all over the world and all throughout our creation. Why? Because God's a God of an intelligent design, repeatable stuff, so that as we observe his creation, we can draw logical conclusions. And part of that can be that God designed it. A general and a specific revelation. So not only is it a sermon today, you got science class, you got English class, you got a revelation class. God reveals himself all throughout history. Even if you look at John chapter 1, it tells us that God was the word, God was with the word, God was there. And so John is is reminding us that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three of them were there. And when we say God, he's like, yes, yes, yes. That God opened up his mouth and breathed out and creation happened. 
the word of God is living and active. You don't just read the Bible. The Bible reads you. Because it penetrates our hearts. It penetrates our souls and it reveals our attitudes of our hearts. That there, you cannot read God's word intently to receive from it and not be transformed by it. Because it's a mirror to us. The Bible is authoritative. Thus saith the Lord. Here's what I want you to get here. Is you are not, I am not the authority over the Bible. The Bible is the authority over us. We don't read the Bible like we go through our junk mail envelopes and like, oh, yeah, no, no. Oh, here, cool. There's a cool credit card offer. Let me check this out. You know what I mean? Like you, you go through those things. And, and sometimes we read the Bible that way of like, oh, I want this. I like this. Mm, I don't like that part where he did this. I mean, that's not how the Bible works. That's not how God works. You don't read the Bible like you read the newspaper's opinion section looking for an angle or looking for an opinion to justify your opinions. And we do that. I see that all over social media, that people will pull articles in different places to support their opinions. And sometimes the stuff that they're pulling is not even true and real. But we're to read the Bible like a love letter where you devour every word and every phrase. And I didn't even thought about this. This is... Talked about it in the first service. I'm pointing over here because Becky was sitting over here in the first service. I don't know where she's at now. but In the old days, pre-internet, we used to do these things called writing. Y'all remember that? Writing letters. You remember those things? And when I was in elementary, junior high, and high school, um, we used to write letters to people. And if you liked people, you would write them extra long letters. And so there was a cost in my school. Like if you wrote a note, a love note to someone and you passed it to, to them, either in the hallway or in the classroom and a teacher saw it, it was going to cost you depending on the teacher. Sometimes some teachers would open them up and read them for you in front of the class, which was always awesome. <sighs> so Chris, are you going to go to such and such with someone? So, you know, check. Yes. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. <sighs> Um, or you some, you would get detention. I mean, there was a cost to these things. And, and it was interesting that if you think back to those moments when you got a note from someone that you really liked and you were infatuated with, you would read it and then you read it in that moment and you like, you maybe had a moment in geometry class where it wasn't making sense. And you're like, geometry doesn't make sense for this love letter. It's really making sense. And so you read that over and over and over again. And that's the idea here of God's word. Is that God has written a love letter to us and he's put it together and he's pieced it together and we're to take it and to open it up and to devour it and to read it over and over and over again and check yes, check yes, because he's checked yes first. It's the greatest love letter. As a matter of fact, the words of God defines love and that our understanding of what true love is comes from him. So the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is also inspired and infallible. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, it says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or for his human initiative. No, all of these writings were moved, all of these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. It's inspired 
by God, infallible. In Second Timothy 3, we already talked about that. When you read the Bible, you are hearing directly from God. When you sit down and read it, it's God's words to you. It's an inspired, he breathed it out. He meant every word. He put every word in there for an, for an intentional purpose. And it directs us back to him and to who he is. All truth is derived from him. How we understand love, how we understand truth is all about him. God's word is wholly reliable because he as the author is reliable. The Bible is also sufficient. It's sufficient unto salvation. Sometimes we're dependent upon tradition. Sometimes we depend upon our human reason. Sometimes emotion drives us. We're in a, in a day and age where romanticism and we make decisions. We love movies that at the end that their heart has led them to the right place. But we understand that the heart is deceptive, but God's word is always true. The Bible is sufficient unto salvation, is sufficient for life and for life giving. It's perfect and trustworthy and right and pure and clear and true. No other word is sufficient other than his. Because again, as it says, his word goes out and it does not return void. It always transforms. It always does the work that it's supposed to do. So if it's doing these things, what, we understand what the Bible is and why the Bible is. Then what are we to do with it? Here Jesus has pulled back the curtain for us as Christians in Luke chapter 8. And this is a parable that's specific to Christians and it's specific to the word of God and what our response should be and how we should be prepared to receive the word of God because it transforms us. So in Luke chapter 8, Jesus is going about and he's doing what rabbis do. So rabbis of the day, they would go from town to town and village to village. And in each village where they were at least 10 Jewish males, they could have a synagogue. And so a synagogue in a town and a village where they had a synagogue, that was the place of worship. That was the community center. That's where they would gather for things. And so it was very common in Jesus's day in towns and villages where there were synagogues, even where there weren't, rabbis would go from town to town and they would teach. And so imagine these rabbis, they would kind of put out a pamphlet. Hey, Rabbi Gamaliel, Rabbi Hillel, Rabbi Mike, Rabbi Chris, Rabbi Jonathan. They're going to show up on this day at this time. Pack your lunches. We're going to have a day of study together. And so people that were like, oh, yeah, I like that. And we do this today. You guys, y'all have preachers that you like that you... If you maybe you listen to a podcast or you watch on TV or whatever it is, you have some people that you like for different reasons. And so that was still the common of, the, of that day as well. And then Jesus was a rabbi and he was different for several reasons. One, people said, hey, this rabbi Jesus guy, he teaches with an authority that the other guys don't teach with. Why? Because one, he breathed words out. So we knew him. All right. But then also there were miracles and things happening. So whenever he would show up, there was teaching with authority, but there also there were miracles and healings and all that kind of stuff happening as well. And so people were hearing the story. And so when they would find out that Jesus was going to a certain village or even began to move in that direction on that footpath, they would run ahead of him to meet him there. Okay, so here's that kind of a setting. And then one of the things that rabbis would do would they would use this teaching tool called parables. So Jesus, as a rabbi, was doing rabbi things, and so he was showing up from village to village teaching. He was doing miracles. He was feeding people, but he was also using a teaching tool of the day called a parable, and a parable is a story meant to teach one main principle and truth, but it made us dig a little bit to understand it. 
And so this is in Luke chapter 8. This story is in all the Gospels, but in Luke chapter 8, I like it because it's expanded. And so we're going to dig into this passage together. So you're with me, okay? So Jesus is moving from village to village. He showed up in a specific village. It doesn't tell us which one. His disciples are with him. A crowd are with him. He begins to teach, all right? And if you think, most of the villages in Jesus' day were around the Sea of Galilee, so they're lower, and they're, as they're looking up at Jesus, this is, this is my imagination, okay, thinking about how Jesus and how I would, the PowerPoint of the day. They're looking up at Jesus, and as they look at him, they see a backdrop of some hills and some mountains and of a farmer doing farmer work. They see a path that people are walking. They see a path of donkeys. They see all this different stuff, and they see in action what Jesus is teaching. Okay, you got it? Here we go. Luke chapter 8. So soon afterward, Jesus had done some other stuff. So soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. His 12 disciples were with him. Here's verse 2 in mind. It's like one of those weird places where they put a little uh, verse thing. Along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, whom he had cast out seven demons. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's business manager, which I think it's interesting that they put this in here because they're like, who are these people? Uh, I mean, we know a little bit about Mary Magdala, but Cusa, like why? It shows us that there were women of influence and of import and of wealth that were being transformed for the gospel and they were supporting the missionary work of Jesus. And it's this beginning to see the growing movement that's happening. Because you can imagine, so it's not just 12 guys. There's 70, 80, 90 people going together. And so who's feeding these people? When they roll into a town, there's not a 7-Eleven. Right? So somebody's got to have the money to draw people to get the food and to do all the different stuff. And so Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's business manager, and Susanna, we don't know who she is. Probably the song, Oh, Susanna, comes from this. I don't know. There you go. And many others who are contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. Verse 4. One day Jesus told a story in the form of a parable to a large crowd that had gathered from many towns near him. So not just that village, but, but they're, they're coming around. Like they're like, hey, you don't want to miss this event. Jesus is teaching. A farmer went out to plant his seed and he scattered it across his field. Some seed fell on a footpath where it stepped on. And the birds ate it. So imagine, again, you're here and you're seeing, you're looking up and you're seeing this farmer reaching into his bag and he's throwing it. So you're seeing some part of the field that's tilled up. You're seeing a path. You've probably walked that path. They may have even had just walked that path from their village to this village and they see it and they're like, oh yeah, I get it. I see it. Verse six, and other seeds fell among the rocks. You have to understand Israel is rocks. Okay. Once you move away from the sea and you kind of like that, it's rocks. When they go into the wilderness, it's more rocks. Okay. So it's, it's desert. And so some fell among the rocks. They're like, well, yes, Jesus, there's rocks everywhere. It began to grow, but the plant soon wilted because there was a lack of moisture. We're, again, we're in the desert. Other seed fell among some thorns. It grew up, but it was choked out like other tender plants. Verse eight, still other seed fell on fertile soil. The seed grew and produced a crop that was a hundred times as much as had been planted. When he had said this, he called out, anyone who has ears to hear should listen and understand. Now, what's interesting is, is in Jesus's teaching and all the Old Testament teaching and rabbis, the idea to hear meant to obey. 
And so anytime you hear something is to obey something. And so we understand this principle because if you're a parent or grandparent or a teacher or someone, there are moments, a boss, there are moments where you say something and you have specific requirements and that you know that that has been heard because they respond and do what you've asked, do what you asked, right? And so this is that idea is that every time we hear from God, the way that he knows that we've heard him is because we respond and do it. If we don't hear it, then we're just listening, and it has no transformation, no transformative power in our life. Okay? And so here, that's what Jesus is talking about. He's like, here's this farmer. He's casting seed in the soil of our heart. We know that we've heard Jesus. We know that we've heard God. If the soil of our heart is prepared in such that we hear it and we respond. All right? So verse 9 he just heard verse eight. He says, anyone who has ears to hear should listen and understand. And then listen, here's what his, his disciples say in verse nine. Uh, what does that mean? Jesus, that teaching you just taught, what does that mean? Which is, should be encouraging to us because there's going to be moments that we read from God's word and we're like, uh, God, what does this mean? So be encouraged by that. Verse 10. He replied, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God. But I use these parables to teach the others so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they look, they won't really see. When they hear, they won't understand. Verse 11, this is the meaning of the parable. This seed is God's word. So here's what I want you to get again. This is two people that are seeking out the word of God and to understand it. So that means that people that are coming to church, people that are seeking out to know God, okay? This isn't, this is an us language. He's pulled back the curtain on the church for, for all of us to see. The seed is God's word. The seeds that fall on the footpath represent those who hear the message only to have the devil, the deceiver, come and take it away from their hearts and prevent them from believing and being saved. In other words, that means that people can come to church year after year, day after day, week after week, and hear the word of God and not believe. Which is heartbreaking. They may even know the words, they know the phraseology, they know the things, but the word of God, the seed of God, the soil of their heart hasn't been ready to receive it. Something in their life keeps them from believing and receiving the word of God. So that means even people at Crosspoint, whether here in the building on a regular basis, watching online, listening on K-Buck, they're wanting to receive the word of God, but something is keeping them from receiving it. It's not the farmer. God's throwing the seed, but the person receiving is not doing the work. Verse 13. So the seeds on the rocky soil then represent those who hear the message and receive it with joy. They, they come to the front, there's tears in their eyes. But since they have don't have deep roots, they believe for a while and then they fall away when temptation comes. Listen, here's what I'm going to tell you. Temptation will come. Storms will come. This is a discipleship thing. Who are we in community to those that have said yes to Jesus? Verse 14, the seeds that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. 
And so they never grow into maturity. What is maturity? What are the characteristics of a mature Christian? I mean, I think we, we, we have a decent idea of what it means for our children and grandchildren to be mature to grow out because we don't want, we want to launch our kids. Right? We want them to get out. So we're preparing them and, and doing all the things that we can do so they can go, so they can be mature and experience the fullness of an adult life for themselves. And when they come home, we rejoice with them as mature children that are now adults and we have a friendship and a bond with them. What does it mean then to be a mature Christian? What are the characteristics of a mature Christian? And part of it means we don't drink milk anymore. We're eating meat. Or maybe if you're not a meditarian, you're a vegetarian. You're eating lots of good vegetables. You have a good, healthy adult diet. We're not feeding milk. We're not grinding up the food. You can take it, and you're doing. And you also, you can take the keys to the car and understand the responsibility behind the car. You have your own bank account. You're investing. You're giving. You're doing things. There's things about the faith that are basic markers of maturity. Let me tell you what I think they are. These are so basic. One, you said yes to Jesus. Two, upon that confession, you've been baptized. Three, that you have a community of fellow believers that you're growing and working together to understand Jesus. You're, whether that's in a large group or in a home, both and, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and 47, that you also are giving of your finances, that you're giving away, you've received from God and you're blessing to God, whatever that may be, and that you're growing in that generosity as you understand the generosity with which God gives to us. And that you're also, that's not just your finances, but also with your time and with your talents. So that God has prepared us. The scripture tells us God prepares us, works specific for us. And so if we're not doing them, they're not getting done. And so those are some of the basics of maturity in our faith. Where are we at? Verse 15. And the seeds that fell on the good soil represent honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, and it patiently produces a huge harvest. As a matter of fact, in the part before, Jesus says a harvest a hundredfold, which his hearers would have understood. A harvest of a hundredfold in that day meant that that seed had died and given life to the full and to the fullest it could do. Because without, with what they knew in that time, a seed that gave a hundredfold of harvest was max. And so here what Jesus is saying to us is that the soil of our heart matters. The intention of our heart matters that we have to soil it, prepare the soil. You have to put the, the horse dung, the donkey dung, whatever you need to do. You need to get it ready because the seed, the farmer is handing out the seed and we need to be ready to receive it. And so if there's thorns, if there's things in life that crowd out the word of God, we need to be removing those things. If the soil of our heart's a little hardened because we've been downtrodden by paths of life and stuff is just kind of beating us down, we've got to do the hard work of cultivating that soil because the seed is coming. And are we going to be able to receive it? Because if we receive it, the fruit that comes from our life is a hundredfold. That the pruning and the intentional work that happens, it's a hundredfold. And the harvest is beautiful. And one of the interesting things, again, about that day in Jesus' day, when someone had a harvest, they would leave the corners of the field for others to glean from. 
that the poor and the others to glean from. And so if you imagine that his audience is listening and they're thinking, man, if I can till the soil of my heart and if God would provide a bounty and a harvest out of my life and then I allow my life to be a field that can be gleaned from, what can I do for the kingdom of God? By having a heart that's ready and receptive to the Father's seed. And for us, too many times we're looking for our own agenda and for our own purposes. And God, would you, and God's just saying, listen, just do the work of tilling your soil. And as I cast the seed, don't worry about the fruit. If you do the hard work of getting the heart ready, he does everything else. He casts the seed, the seed dies, it grows, and the harvest is there. John chapter 20 says it this way, the scriptures are written so that you may continue to believe that the, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. But the word of God, the seed is Jesus. Everything points to him and that the harvest in our lives is him. And have the opportunity to people to glean from our fields and to know that the bounty of our life, the things of our life, the reason that we have joy is because of him. But that's the foundation of our life. One of the things I want to challenge you to this is this. It's real easy. If you don't have a Bible, get one. We have some Bibles over here. We have free ones. There's free ones here. Everything that's a Bible, steal it. It's yours. In the name of Jesus, take it. I'm serious. It's the most stolen. It's the most stolen item in the world. Anyway, join the party. But also when you steal one, check it first and make sure you can understand it. It's an in language that you can get it. I know some of you all have King James or something like that. It's hard to understand. Set it aside. It's a family heirloom. Love it. All that. Open it every once in a while. Make sure your lineage is still good, but get you a Bible. You can understand. All right, you can do that today easy. It's free. You can go to Bible.com. You can go to version, Y-O-U-Version.com. And there's literally hundreds of translations. Just work through them and find yours. You can carry it on your phone, um, whatever. You can buy them, ChristianBooks.com or whatever. There's all kinds of places to get them. All right, just get a Bible and begin reading it, the seed of God. Begin using the soap method that we taught you a few weeks ago. If you don't know that, go back and you can watch them on Facebook, on YouTube, on Roku, on Apple Podcasts, I don't know if we're on Spotify, whatever. Um, we're on KBuck, all the different places. You can find it, listen to it, study it. We have journals over here with some tools as well. Get those. And then ultimately, with all those different things, begin to just say, God, prepare the heart. Prepare my heart. May my heart, may the soil of my heart be receptive. Intentionally do the work. So that your heart is not hardened, your heart is not too dry, there's not too many rocks, there's not thorns and thistles. Because listen, God says, those things will be there. We bring those things in. But God says, do the work so you can receive the word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us enough to send us your love letter. May we not keep it on a shelf, may we pull it down every day. And be reminded of how you love us and how much you love us and how you want to bless us and how you desire to care for every single detail of our life. Father, may we do the work of farmers in our heart and may we cultivate until 
and be intentional with preparing the heart of our soil, the soil of our hearts, for your word. May we allow you to have an abundant harvest of a hundredfold in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, to the seed that you plant. For it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Cross Point Community Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this message was encouraging to you as you follow Jesus. For more about Cross Point Community Church, you can find us online at crosspointchurchtx.org. Have a great week.